So, you start, right? Yep. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and for anybody else who loves the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Next week, we have our big old giant sequoia episode with Dr. Johanna von Wickboss. But this week, we have uh, one last uh, mini episode in preparation, a sort of uh, ornamental Japanese maple episode, uh, digging into the first part of the book of Hosea. So, Rachel, you're up for this one. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to start with a kind of odd request. And my request is that you do actually preach on this text. Ooh. This would have been a text, I know. This would have been a text that when I was in the pulpit, I would have read it and said, nope, and gone straight on to the gospel or the psalm or the New Testament. But I want us to just hover over it for a minute for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that next week's text, the 11th chapter of Hosea, has some of the most gorgeous godmother imagery in the entire Bible. It is one of my favorite chapters. It is beautiful. But to preach only that out of Hosea is only part of the story, and it's an important piece that is missing if you skip this first chapter. So let's walk through it together. The very first verse orients us to who Hosea was and to when he was preaching. If you're a little bit fuzzy on your Deuteronomistic history, the stories of the first and second kings, essentially, what you need to know is that that list of kings comes at a time that was incredibly politically fraught for the kingdom of Israel and of Judah. Their enemies were strengthening, Assyria and Egypt were warring, and it became very clear that it was only a matter of time before the kingdom of Israel was going to fall. The kings of Israel had not only participated in idolatry and bloodshed, but they had finally, in a desperate attempt, tried to align themselves with other foreign powers to save their own skins. It was a traumatic political time for the northern kingdom. Idolatry had begotten idolatry, violence had begotten violence, and the writing was on the wall and it was written in blood. It was into this political climate of violence, chaos, and doom that Hosea entered. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel shared a similar political climate, though 200 years after Hosea, and we actually see some similarities in their prophecies out of this trauma. One of the similarities we see is they all make a metaphor where God is presented as a faithful husband and Israel or Judah are presented as either adulterous wives or as prostitutes. Now, in the time period that the Bible was inspired by God and written down with human hands, this was an appropriate metaphor. It was a metaphor written by men for men about deep love deeply betrayed. In a culture of honor and shame, it would have spoken a powerfully positive message of the depth of Israel's betrayal and the breadth of God's love and faithfulness. Now, 
This message retains its power today, but has completely lost its ability to convey a positive message. We don't live in a culture of honor and shame. We don't live in a culture where women are dependent on their husbands for survival, so much so that an extramarital affair was an ultimate act of foolishness, since it ultimately threatened a woman's very existence. So continuing to lift up this metaphor as a way that your people should think about their relationship with God is damaging and shouldn't be done. Now, does that mean that the book of Hosea should be excised out of the Bible and should never again be preached? To pull from my Lutheran heritage, by no means. While Hosea participates in this graphic, problematic metaphor of Israel as faithless wife, it is not the only metaphor in the book. Next week, we will get to hear Dr. Johanna Boss dive in with us into the most gorgeous chapter where God calls herself mother in the most beautiful terms. But it would be doing both the Bible and your people a disservice to present only that chapter of Hosea. We must be honest about our heritage. We must admit the damage that biblical metaphors have done to women. And the best place to start doing that is from the pulpit. So roll with the metaphor. Give some of the historical context why it would have been powerful. Politically, their world was coming to a bloody end, and it was because of a senseless act of faithlessness on the part of Jerusalem's elite. For them, the best way to describe this would have been this metaphor, which no longer works for us. But the concept remains powerful. In your setting, what are the silly, senseless acts of the few that are bringing about misery for the innocent? Is it feckless economic policies that privilege short-term gain but are killing small towns and rural areas? Is it infatuation with convenience that makes our lives easier? but is killing the earth upon which we must depend? Or maybe you know of younger girls and boys, middle schoolers, high schoolers, whose human need for social acceptance is driving them to do long-term damage to their bodies, their brains, their hearts, their souls. For that matter, the not-so-young do the same. It's a message everybody could hear. So preach this text. If Reading Wife of Whoredom in front of your congregation feels unnecessarily painful for any woman who has ever had to endure being called a whore, and you can be sure there's many of us in your congregation. Substitute a different word in the reading. Wife of perversion, children of depravity, wickedness, sinfulness, vice. People will get the message, or you can clarify it for them in your sermon. Hosea preaches a powerful message of the blind things that we do that ultimately devour our ability to live thriving lives. It's a message that we'll preach. Just find a different metaphor. And again, I would so strongly encourage you that if you're going to preach the gorgeous mother imagery in next week's Hosea text, which I would even more strongly encourage, exhort you to do, preach this one as well. Be honest about our heritage. Do justice to the complicated nature of our holy scriptures, which can be both full of awe and awful. And your people and their relationships with God deserve honesty about that. 
Thank you, Rachel. That's a really challenging and helpful approach to this difficult text. And I, I really hope that lots of preachers are going to take you up on your invitation to to take a crack at this one and to see if they can preach it to their congregation in a way that is encouraging and uplifting, uh, working with that uh, difficult metaphor in the ways that you suggested. I, I think some really good sermons could come from this. Thanks, I hope so too. It wasn't an easy uh, prep to do for me, so I'm sure it wouldn't be for you preachers as well. So do it with a strong cup of coffee, let's just say that. Yeah, good idea, good idea. Well, hey, I hope that you all will tune in next week when we uh, have our long-form episode with our special guest expert. Uh, Until then, if you uh, need to catch up on past episodes, check your podcast feed or go to our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. There you'll find all the good stuff. Uh, But until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching.